0: You're listening to
1: Arsenal Pass. A flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. So Brendan, are we playing Rosetta Thorn and Briar at our nationals this year? So it's very exciting because I actually... My
0: theory is that... Dust Hold is not balanced around Rosetta Thorn being legal. Hot take.
1: Well, if you're a conspiracy theorist, wouldn't you think that LSS would just drop in a random two points into the Living Legend leaderboard from somewhere uh, to make sure that Briar hit Living Legend? Because newsflash, Brendan, 998. That is the Living Legend points. As we record, we've just found out that Briar, post the Road to National season, has achieved 998 total Living Legend points and will survive this uh, next... Ban suspended announcement where it would go to living legend if it hit a thousand points like ultim will by the skin of its teeth literally one that's one road to nationals win that's the difference and there was a lot of discussion this past weekend about people you know briar mains conceding finals to mm. avoid i don't know how true things yeah. like this are but it's uh yeah it's funny
0: so i just want to follow up some questions on that do you think that the dust till dawn meta would be more interesting or less interesting with briar Living legend. So, Briar, not currently having a massive impact in the meta, could have a resurgence as Old Him leaves. Let's not speculate on the power level of Vincent or any of that quite yeah. yet. But assuming Old Him is gone, do you think that the meta would be more interesting or less interesting uh, with Briar in it?
1: That's a tough question. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've seen this card from Dusted Dawn. That is a Earth uh, a Briar Spire specialization Correct, Earth card, yes. right? Which is very interesting. So you know people are going to get at least one season to play with that card in class constructed. Whereas maybe we thought that was going to be, you know, Blitz only or Living Legion format when that er- uh, eventually arrives. We're now going to get the eva- you know the ability to play with that card during this next class constructed season. So. Uh, interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, it really depends. You know, we're entering a Runeblade set and you're coming in with one of the most powerful weapons in the game yeah. still <laughs> available to play. So it's whether it's Briar, whether it's viscerai whether it's Vincent, you know, it's really hard to say at this point. We can't, you know, we, we know nothing about the set other than t- the two sort of cards we've seen. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it looks a lot more powerful than the the, the, the flail. Uh huh.
0: Yeah, it's pretty funny because I, I could care less about Briar um, being in or out of the format, but it's really Rosetta Thorne. I think that Dust Till Dawn, I'm, I don't know if it's going to be better or worse, but I am more intrigued that Rosetta Thorne is legal going into Dust Till Dawn than I would have been if not. Because I, I do think that, that LSS might have thought that Briar wrote a living legend. I, I don't know. We did see a really powerful Briar specialization. I think that's what's got the juices cooking right now, but it's, I don't know. We'll see. We'll
1: see. I, I'm more excited to play viscerai with Rosetta Thorn. That's been one of yes. my, that's been what I've enjoyed the most with Rosetta is playing viscerai mm-hmm. uh, over the past, you know, two years. But I have a question for you. This is not the first time we've seen a hero hit a, you know, effectively one win, a one win and out situation we saw this with you know uh i believe prism get this close previously prism ultimately ends up winning the um is it the calling calling i I want to make uh, this in
0: uh yeah
1: yeah so i guess my question is 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 the living legend format in need of another or sorry living legend sorry system in need of a another immediate sort of overhaul is this point system Mm. you know i heard a lot of talk this past weekend about briars conceding about people putting bounties on briars to get the the briar to the points to get it out of the format this kind of manipulation of a point system because it only goes to the winner the these two living legend points Mm. Could this have been done, you know, is there a potential this could be done in a different way? Should Living Legend be split across the top four heroes, across the first and second heroes? You know, is this sort of a, a I don't to say a gameable system, because I guess all systems can mm-hmm. be at some degree. But this, this also feels like maybe it's not quite a right system for what we're trying to achieve here with Living Legend.
0: Um, yeah, I think this is a hot take, but I, I think that the Living Legend system is not actually well thought out and is kind of just something that was thrown together and we're just kind of running with it despite the game scaling to, you know, different sizes, right? Where we were when this iteration of Living Legend came out versus where we are now is wildly different in terms of the number of events that are taking place and how fast these things can actually rotate out and when they're rotating out, right? There's not a true science to taking heroes in and out of the format. It kind of just happens. And you can see that system potentially break down. I think in the past, I've been more critical of it because i felt the pressure of the system just not, what felt like it was not working, right? But I will say, despite the architecture of current, the current state of Living Legend seeming to be sort of just tossed together, I do think that so far in Flesh and Blood, for the competitive scene, Living Legend has resulted in the best changes in the formats that we've seen so far. Like most of the formats that I've seen have an overhaul um, in in recent history have not been from new sets releasing, but have been from heroes rotating out. And we've seen like wildly different changes in the meta that have been much more balanced. And it's felt like you could play more heroes because we had troublesome ones rotate out. So I've enjoyed the results of Living Legend, but I do think that the system, it doesn't scale infinitely, right? Like Fab gets 10 times bigger. The system doesn't... theoretically doesn't work at all, I don't think. So could mm-hmm. we see an overhaul? I, I do think we will. I think that it's the whole entire idea of Living Legend has been a developing system literally since the inception, right? A lot of people don't know this, but the OG Living Legend was one of the clunkiest, just hilarious things that Ellis has ever created. Basically, the hero would have to win like 10 events and it, it didn't matter if it was limited or constructed and mm-hmm. it would get the one Living Legend point and you would be, your name would be put on the website with some blurb about the tournament like it was hilarious right but it's been overhauled i think two times since then maybe even more we've had some things tweaked around values etc so yeah uh i know that was a bit of a spiel but i do think that the system is not in its final form and we will see changes but despite it being imperfect it has i think it's had a net positive on the game so far yeah
1: i mean I just want to go back to something you said, which is people are going to probably see as a really hot take, which is you know Living Legend has had a bigger impact than new sets on changing metagames, and I think new sets have a longer-lasting impact, mm-hmm. right? You see cards that continue to impact the game from set to set, uh, and I think in the case of Outsiders, in particular, you know for for certain classes, they definitely have a much bigger impact than than what Living Legend or a rotation of a hero can do. Look at Ranger, for example, right? But th- we've seen the format time and time again changed dramatically as we've gone through these living legend sort of phases so we just talked about prism before and prism winning the calling in leal uh achieves living legend right by the skin of its teeth everyone's so i remember i remember being in that hall and everyone being like is it gonna yeah. is it gonna the bright people watching like the table and it was like briar's ahead like briar's got this game and then all of a sudden it's like no the prism's come back i remember people talking about it about was prism gonna living legend and people like rooting for prism to finally leave the format um and this is of course after you know the previous season where if bravo won the pt star of the show it wouldn't have been available for the uh the pro quest format for pro tour number two mm-hmm. all these things right and so prism living legends we see a, a hero in the form of icelander that was like super suppressed we just barely saw it in in leal and then all of a sudden with prism living legend and the same set of cards effectively we see icelander really come to the forefront as one of the best decks of the format right so that immediate big change so I, I think while you, that's kind of like a hot take, I, I agree. I think it is it just might not be as intuitive as people think in terms of the way that that works, but it really does massively shake up the format and give big changes because a lot of decks or strategies just aren't viable because of particular heroes. And I think Ultim Living Legend was going to always have more of an impact than Briar Living Legend anyway, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's hard to say with Dust Dawn and what that set might do to the format, but Ultim Living Legend is a huge impact to what the format can will look like I think as we move move forward into this next season yeah two
0: things one do you remember the roar in the in the event venue at uh, in Lille when Prism won that calling it was it was I think it was the loudest noise that occurred that weekend right people were so invested in Prism living legending and watching that calling final match it, it got a lot of publicity it was it was like it was a big deal um outside of that just kind of zooming out to like uh, Flesh and Blood holistic design. Like, the, I don't know how I feel about Living Legend in terms of how it affects card pools and people's sort of viability to play the game based off their collection. Because, due to Flesh and Blood being a hero based game, I know there's a lot of people that sort of ha- take on a more role play aspect or just like to specialize in a specific hero. And I'm not sure how much, or just how much I like the part where, you know, Prism rotates out and this massive card pull. like, you know, maybe someone is literally just a light illusionist player. They might identify as a Prism player, but they just have light illusionist cards. Prism rotates out and then they just can't play with the cards for like a very, very long time. It's... (laughs) it's a, it's a, it's sort of, a, it's a weird place, right? Because that definitely sucks for those people. I know I've heard it affecting people in a really negative way where they're like, they, they didn't want to play anymore. And I'm just not sure how much I like that part of the system. And that's the main thing I want to see overhauled is better support for a class pool, class slash talent pool that gets living legended out to a hero. I would like to see a new hero come in quicker to support that card pool that basically just becomes, you know, relatively unplayable. Obviously there's alternate, formats like you know popper or blitz potentially etc but um for me that that's sort of my critical issue with living legend in, in its current state which is a fundamental mm. issue
1: i i kind of think you said some of the reasons why i don't see it as much of an issue you you talked about this there's, there's formats like prison. you can if you're a prison player if you're a light illusionist player you can still play your hero i think and i guess i compare it to you know if you've ever played MOBAs or even to an extent some you know online rpgs where it's like okay nerfs happen or changes happen to certain characters and your character is like unplayable maybe or they're playable but just in a purely social fun way right Mm. and i think you still have that with with prism if it was also banned in blitz i think that might be a bit of a different story i understand people want to play classic constructed but i think what you know, maybe if you play two or three classes, then you're always gonna have these options available to you, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So it's a it's a bit of a cash twenty-two from LSS's standpoint as well, because you can only introduce so many heroes and you want to go down different pathways, right? I saw someone tweet this morning. I haven't heard about anything about Necromancer since we, you know, that kind of law drop a year ago. It's like, yeah. There's so many things for LSS still to explore from mm-hmm. a a character standpoint, from a class standpoint, from a talent standpoint. So it's really hard to service every single Segment of not even just a class because this is light illusions mm-hmm. we're talking about. Yeah.
0: So I think you could even draw a parallel to something more direct like magic, right? So in magic, let's play, let's say you're playing like a standard deck and it is based, you know, standard decks can often be based around a specific card, right? A card is just very powerful. That card gets banned. Maybe your, your jund pile, your red, green, you know, black pile, it's just, it sucks now. <laughs> it was based around the one broken card. So you're still kind of getting, you're kind of getting banned out of the format in terms of the card pool that you're utilizing to play in your deck. It's just in, in Flesh and Blood, it's just so visceral, right? It's like now you literally have all these cards that say that text and they were attached to this hero that you had a lot of empathy for and they're just unplayable to an extent, right? Other formats. Um, for me, it's like I don't have a core issue with that existing. I, I understand that's a balancing-ish system we have in the game. I would just like to see a hero for the the band's you know, talent class, um, whatever, get introduced to the game faster you know maybe it could come in as an armory promo stuff like that I, I don't know if that's too tough on design but i would just like to see it come back into the game a bit quicker than we've seen so far
1: fair enough we can mm-hmm. agree to disagree then mm-hmm. <laughs> i i really i personally really like the pace of reintroducing heroes in certain classes and talents i, I like that we get to spend some time without them i think it it it's interesting as someone who likes to deck build. It's interesting as sort of variety to the gameplay and variety to the events we see. And I think it makes LSS's job a lot more manageable from a balancing standpoint. But, you know, I, I can understand both sides. I can see why people would be frustrated and want that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that said, the kind of, I guess, the top of the show was Briar has not achieved Living Legend status and we will be living through next season with Rosetta Thorn and Briar. And I can guarantee the first person to get those, notch up those two points is going to be... Uh, well Heralded, I'm sure,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's going to happen right it it's it's it didn't happen, which that's that's the interesting event, but you know shortly after in the future, we can only assume those two points will be achieved, but yeah, um ultimately, my sentiment is I, I'm excited i'm happy, I'm happy that it happened this way
1: yeah it's it's pretty crazy, <laughs> uh, I guess we'll I guess well, first of all, episode one hundred and thirteen of Arsenal Fast, welcome to the pod this week, we're gonna touch a little bit on. We've got a few different things to touch on, but uh the I guess the main topic of the pod that we're gonna talk about that isn't Briar Living Legend or not Living Legend, is navigating in games. Uh the more that the formats have, I think, started to slow down. Brittany, we've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of pods. You know, the dominance of decks like Ultim, the rise of decks like Dromai, uh, and a lot of interesting, you know, Assassin coming into the format as well. These decks that grind out games and a lot of interesting matchups that we've seen over this past classic constructor format, things like Ultim versus Dromai, Lixy versus Assassin, Lixy versus Ultim, Blades versus Guardians. Um, we've seen this kind of really interesting second cycle, a meme as it was once in mm. Arsenal past history, Brennan, the second cycle. We've actually seen it be super relevant in this most recent classic constructed format. And we're going to talk about how you navigate these end games because it's kind of like one of our favorite things that has never come to fruition really. And, and here it is.
0: Yeah, Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood in general is a game where um, you have to play to win. And I, I know that sounds really funky but it, it, it's just not one of those games where you can kind of just play hand-to-hand completely abstract from the rest of your deck and everything else that's going on and win right like all of these different factors matter and they start to compound as you move from the early game to the mid game to the end game and the, and the choices that you've made in the previous sections will in will sort of impact the later and you need to be planning that from the start of the game
1: Mm, tell it to the fireman's during uprising. Well, that yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, some decks, you know, maybe they get away with it. <laughs> I, I think <clears throat> we've seen through a lot of periods of flesh and blood that you've been able to get away with that uh, more so than in others, and I think this one is particularly one where you you might not be able to. You know, I think there's a lot more diversity to that. The power level has definitely decreased mm-hmm. set over set, right? Uh, we've seen powerful heroes be effectively banned or hit living legend and yeah this format is very very interesting even the most you know explosive and aggressive deck in the form of lexi still has a lot of nuance and plays a lot of games that hit second cycle uh because of the rate that it goes through its cards and because of sort of the ability that decks are looking to defend lexi with so we're definitely going to talk about that but uh i guess first of all weak flesh and blood i mean i can sort of start. I'm, I'm flying out to Singapore tomorrow, Brendan, mm-hmm. so very excited to to be back in Singapore for another calling. Uh, I mean, the last calling in Singapore was only seven or eight months ago, I think, uh, what no, nine months ago prior to Lille. So wait, no, that's longer than that. When was Lille? Almost a year. Anyway, <laughs> well, I don't know. back in Singapore. <laughs>
0: Sometime in the past, right? It's like almost 12 months now because it, it closes around 12 months when we go back to Europe for worlds, right?
1: Very true. Yeah. So uh, back, to, back to Singapore, really looking forward to it. Such a cool place. One of my favorite places I've been to just as a, a destination, mm. but also to play Flesh and Blood. The community is amazing. Last time I was there, I got to hang out, play uh, some like UPF at a local store, uh, hang out with some of the Singapore community. And um, yeah, the, the events are great. Looking forward to this on Friday, there is a, a Monarch Sealed event that James White's going to be playing in. Mm. we'll be playing that looking to I think it's called like take down the monarch or something like that uh, I don't know but anyway <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's gonna be a, so, a, a soft field James James a bit washed up these days I think Not kidding James Hayden <laughs> hey, um, you're attending the calling of Singapore obviously that's where you're going mm. 0 to 10 where would you rate your confidence in your possible your potential
1: to win that tournament oh, I mean I'll always give myself at least a 7 you know? okay well, um, okay,
0: 7 to 10 where do you rate, where do you
1: rate yourself uh, I feel pretty good about this event. I think in terms of preparation and, and testing, I've been able to do some good amounts of testing, which I feel like I haven't really been able to do for any events since sort of the past year. I would say maybe my nationals back at the start of last year, I was able to prepare quite... Uh, it was quite a succinct sort of testing process. I was able to, you know, lock my deck in early and test the things I wanted to, and I've kind of done something similar a little bit this time, um, and just learn matchups, learn the deck I'm going to play, and that feels a lot. But that's the sort of way that I prefer to to prepare and and be ready for an event, as opposed to, you know, last minute sort of changing decks, changing deck lists. I think me and Brendan we've talked about this a lot. The kind of impacts this has had on our sort of events in the past. it exciting. Like, well wow, I was thinking pro <laughs> to allele, but uh, <laughs> which is a bit of a wash for us unfortunately with you know I, but again that that was very different to I think how we prepared for Worlds so yeah no I'm I'm looking forward to this event I feel reasonably confident it's going to be a really tough field and there's a lot of international players coming in as well as in a, a really strong uh, SEA community so um of course Singapore itself with the players there so yeah no I'm I'm really looking forward to it though I, I can't wait to kind of get there and it's only seven hours on plane. so I'll uh I'll say myself you know what I, I did actually is I I, down- I got my switch out I haven't played my switch in like mm. a year I downloaded Skyrim Brendan and Skyrim, uh, Skyrim. on a switch yeah. what the hell <laughs> <laughs> hey it, it runs all right you know that's wild
0: uh that's crazy yeah I think that tangent but some of the stuff you can do on Switch is crazy, but what people are doing on Steam Deck is even even more wild. Oh, yeah, like it's not. Full-fledged games on that. Um, yep. Crazy. All right, yeah, so My Week in Flesh and Blood, absolutely nothing. Hayden, there's a few times in your life, I think as you progress through life from infancy to old age, there's a few times in your life occurrences where you will appreciate the power of modern medicine, and that's what I had. So I had a I had a kidney infection, and then I had the antibiotics were not the right ones, and I switched— and Jesus Christ, that was one of those painful things I've ever gone through in my life. That was legitimately terrible. <laughs> so I am better. I am better now. But oh my God, I, I I've been sick before. Everybody's been sick, right? And you take antibiotics, you feel better. But this was this was like true pain. And mm-hmm. having an out something that actually made me feel better, it was just it was I had a revelation. I was like, wow, I'm so happy I live in the modern day. <laughs> Holy shit, it was it was <laughs> tough, dude. Um, but yeah better now and yeah i mean i still don't know what i'm doing for nationals i I still haven't heard anything and i still know through like whatever back channels that i have access to that they're still trying to figure it out so i i don't know if i'm doing coverage i don't know if i'm playing um still kind of a toss uh toss up i think if i do play um i'll probably i'll probably play kano (laughs) play kano to be honest it looks it looks pretty powerful and yeah I'm at that stage, Hayden, where I think uh, I think I'm getting close to. I want to play the decks that I just really enjoy, even at events like mm. this. Yeah, so Boomer Fab.
1: <laughs> I was going to say that's 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 leaning in, but um, I mean, we'll see how good Kano is with dust of Dawn and and kind of what the format looks like. Uh, you know, I can't get, really get any considered- worse,
0: right? I no more well, oasis
1: i really considered playing of for singapore
0: it's a good deck i mean so. it's a good deck it's uh we we were talking about it i was gonna play it i was gonna play it this past weekend in Rotana. but yeah we we're it's a good deck it's a good deck but yeah things surely can't get worse they can't print more oasis Respite. no more war, ward surely
1: wow more ward we already know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway uh onto the news brendan I mean, top of the news on our list was, is, we just said, is Briar a living legend? The answer's no, so we can move on. Final week of Road to Nationals happened this past week. I think there is one more week for parts of Europe because they missed out uh, on one week was a call calling Antwerp. So Road to Nationals swiftly wrapping up. I'm sure from there we'll see invite lists to Nationals, people who are trying to get on XP. The XP cutoff is uh, is upcoming. People will know where they stand when it comes to making sure they're in for their national championships, which, I mean, start very quickly. I mean, it's we're in mid... Well, wait, wait, early, I guess, but soon enough we will be in mid-June, Brendan. Then we've got Dust of Dawn releasing in July. We've got these, uh, these Monarch events, War of the Monarch events, which are coming up as well before the release of Dust of Dawn. And then we basically hit into the Road to National season in August. So it's coming around very, very quickly. Um, Singapore is on this weekend, as we just talked about. There is coverage, I believe, for Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably tweet out a link. I don't know Yeah, I, I was going to say, do
0: we know who's doing coverage? Uh, I'm assuming it's not going to be on Legend Story Series or Fab's channel. So it'll be on no, Singapore. I
1: think it never is, but they will, I think it might be one, two juice who are a Singaporean based group of content creators who I think are doing it. I believe they're casting it. So there will definitely be coverage somewhere. We'll, we'll post a link on Twitter. Maybe Brendan can reshare that as well. If you don't follow me for whatever reason, only follow Brendan. Sounds like a mistake. Yeah, if you if you uh, saw
0: our Twitter, our Twitter numbers, you'd realize that everybody that follows me also follows you. <laughs> it's like literally the same. It just ticks up. Yep.
1: Um, uh, What else is going to say about Singapore? Oh, yeah. Come say hello. If you're going to be there as well. Really looking forward to, to catching up with people. Um, six thousand subscribers is just around the corner, Brendan. We're almost there. So if you are, you know, maybe you're not sub to the channel, maybe you're listening on Spotify, do us a favor, jump across to YouTube, hit us a sub, hit us a like on the video. Mm-hmm. It means a lot to us, yes. and we're about to you, but band up and okay.
0: headbutt that subscribe button, karate chop that like button. Help us get to six k. so have you been watching? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to get the people
1: going. If you're excited for Dust of Dawn, War and Monarch events are happening July 7th to July 9th. I'm definitely going to be playing one of these. There's some cool uh, coal foil sort of prizes, and um, the Rainbow Foil Art Extended Herald of Ravages is available. Have those been given out before? Were those content creator ones. There's been so many for yes. Arts I can't remember those were. Okay.
0: So there was definitely Herald of Protection. Was there also Ravages? Yes. I think Protection was the content creator, but man, for some reason I maybe Herald of Ravages is the only one that currently doesn't exist because there's Yeah, it might be. Yeah.
1: war tune was a judge promo one, I think. Mm-hmm. So um or a, a different promo, but yeah. And there's also these Cold Foil uh Prism, New Prism, Event of Thrones, and uh Vincent. So yeah, these Vints look really cool these um these royal monarch events so looking forward to that Mm -hmm. it's uh it's monarch booster draft format which you know if you're going to be attending a national championship really good practice for a national championship that will also have monarch draft in it if your nationals will have monarch draft which is a big chunk of uh of national events so yeah definitely get out i mean i'm I'm literally going to be i'm going to go to as many as i can just because it's great great practice for upcoming national season as well and finding People that want to draft all the time is really hard. So, any events that are draft, I think, are always worth sort of getting to. Mm Battle Hard in Baltimore. I want to ask you about this. This is happening next weekend. So, Singapore this weekend. Battle Hard in Baltimore is next weekend. I didn't know, Brendan, but this is a team event. Yeah, it's a team team event. Outside is Team Sealed and top four team draft. What are your thoughts Mm. on more of these team events? You know, we've seen them, of course, the calling uh famously last year we got the calling uh, around this time last year which was a a team blitz uh just shout out to my team as making top four in the the australian yeah one. shout out to uh, my team making day one <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh even even michael hamilton couldn't carry you on that one apparently <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah yeah well it was a great event uh, i love team events so the real question you should be asking me they're is, amazing yeah you should be asking me why am yeah. i not going should we have more of them yeah why oh. Well, the reason I'm Fair not to. going is because <clears throat> it was now it's pretty late to be honest. Uh, I had some people ask me wanted into the play, and it was uh, it was like 800 bucks to fly to Baltimore. It <laughs> is, I mean, we've talked about it before on the pod, but the the travel yeah, costs- trying to get to Baltimore. Yeah, tough. Yeah, travel costs are un-freaking-believable these days. So, yeah, I mean, generally just priced out of these Battle Horns that aren't um, locally within like a 10-hour drive at this point. Uh, but I'm super excited for people to get to play. Um, looks really fun, and I'm, I'm very jealous. Those team events, especially, it's Team Sealed, I believe, too. Uh, yeah, that Those those are extremely fun to play. I, I, I enjoy Team Sealed. I don't know if I enjoy it more than Team Blitz because Team Blitz is it's it's a fun sort of uh, puzzle to try and crack, but Team Sealed mm-hmm. is is a very very enjoyable experience. I got to play it a few times with Michael Fang um, and Yongji
1: at the Realm Games events. That's right, that's right. Yeah, you guys had a, a good run in that event. What what do you think about this team team events in general? Do you, do you think there should be more of them? And if so, is Sealed? Yeah, a, a good format for it, or would you just prefer they were things like Blitz?
0: So, I think the Seal is the the most approachable version of this. Um, Blitz is just a little bit prohibitive because I mean, not a lot of people play it. Um, also, of course, you need more cards. But so I like Team Seal because it, really anybody who's sort of entrenched in Flesh and Blood already can walk up and do a Team Seal event. It's like any Seal event, right? I love Team events. I think they're great for the game. I wish there were more, but I. I understand and empathize with team events being maybe not the best for the entire community because we I think that you and I, we would have people to play with every time if we want to go to a team event, um, just because we've been in the game for a long time and we're content creators. That's how it is. And I understand being in potentially being in the position where you don't have a team and maybe that search to try to just be a ringer or go find some, you know, like quote unquote random team is maybe not a pleasurable experience. So there is a, a high barrier to entry to compete at these things. You have to have friends and that's tough. And you have to have friends that you want to compete with. They're fun, et cetera. But yeah, I understand why they're limited. I think if they were super common, they might become taxing to people that didn't have teams that they were sort of prepared to go with. Uh, but overall, they're for, from my personal experience, they've been my favorite events so far.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember, so just throwing back to some old Magic events, and uh, there was a team modern Mm -hmm. event here in Sydney, or it was in Australia anyway, uh, a few years ago before I stopped playing Magic, and uh, my friends came across from New Zealand, and we we played the event, and it was one of the best events I've ever played, and it kind of really, I'd already played team events before that, but it really sparked me wanting to play more team events, and I think, if I remember, there was more players at that event than there were uh, for the event the following year, which was not a team event so mm-hmm. it's quite interesting I think to your point I, I agree it is maybe a little bit harder from an approachability standpoint but if it's sealed I, I also like your point I think that makes it easy to approach you know that's easier to potentially find players and and I will say what happened with the blitz one I remember here in in Australia for the this I guess the southern hemisphere calling that that happened at the same time as the Europe and the North American calling for the team blitz is that People just, you know, they helped each other. Like community were helping each other. They are like, oh, I have a player here who's at my locals. They need, you know, there's two of them. Maybe they need one more player. They're playing these two decks. Does someone want to join them? Like people were just putting out things and getting teams together. Even on the Friday before, people were putting teams together, which is quite a cool community thing to see as well. So I do agree. It is, it is. I think, harder if you don't have those groups. But I do also think there are people out there willing to make it happen for you as well, which is, is quite a cool community aspect as well. So the reason and the I'm- events are so fun.
0: Yeah. The main, the reason why I like team events so much is because Flesh and Blood is actually a team game at its core. Um, nobody who's successful in Flesh and Blood <laughs> does it by themselves. Um, they do it with, uh, other people supporting him, whether it's for testing, uh, theory, etc. Like it, it's a team-based game and all the best players in the game are sort of an example of that. And it just transitions really nicely into something li- like a team seal, even if when it's occasional, because you do actually get to play, you know, not a, a non-zero sum with your teammates, right? Oftentimes you're like you're trying to game the gem or you know just hoping you don't get paired. But now you get to actually team up with your teammates and go against other people. It's really really fun. Um, it's also a totally different <coughs> different way to play Flesh and blood. <laughs> like you're so used to playing one v one, but once you start playing team events, um, just the dynamic of having those three, you know, you three sitting sitting next to each other talking to each other uh, and all the metagaming that goes into it it's like okay who do we put on seat one do we put the most unknown player on that team in seat one so people can't metagame us before like, it, it just adds so many more dynamics to an already incredible game that it, it's definitely very very fun and I, I would encourage anybody who hasn't tried it yet to definitely, definitely give it a shot because I mean it's just, it's just it's totally different right you finish your game you go put your little chair behind your behind your teammate you're washing all their hands etc
1: I, I, yeah, you're making me want to play more team events right now. I remember this is, you know, Sydney calling. We we'll sit there. We've got, we've got Doc Dan in the middle on Kano. I'm on the right on Reiner. We've got Nick Butch on the left on Ultim. Just, just playing our games, just enjoying everything. What do you think of, you've done some team drafts, mm. notoriously. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually uh, pretty
0: good though, as I heard.
1: Yeah, as long as I'm not there. <laughs> what is your thoughts on a, a top four team draft as the kind of, like, do you think team draft is a thing that can work? sort of at um i mean at, at a tier two event at least in the form of something like a battle hunt oh to be honest
0: hayden i don't know because i feel like this is something that might be outside of my wheel like i'm not anticipating what variables make this not competitively viable because in my mind playing it at a casual level or even playing it for money matches on like day three of a tournament or something mm-hmm. um i think it's a great format so it's, it's my one of my favorite formats because there's there's so much more metagaming that goes into it and strategy it's very very fun uh so it seems like it could transition into a competitive format for me but i'm assuming because it has i've never heard of it being officially supported that there maybe is some pitfalls to it from a competitive integrity standpoint i don't know but um enjoyability wise hell yeah it's better than team seal in my opinion
1: i think if you've got competitive players playing this on the regular and wanting to play this format it's probably a reason to at least investigate it so i think that's what Alice is doing and it'll be interesting to see how this event goes so yeah battle hardened baltimore Team sealed into top four team draft. Um, I guess last thing in the news, Brendan. Just want to give another shout out. I don't. I think we talked about this briefly on the last pod, but uh, we did a Patreon pod last week uh, that referenced uh, Cathartican's Gorganian Tome on YouTube's video around Flesh and Blood as a fighting game. Which, if you haven't seen that video already, go check it out. Um, I think I think I retweeted it on Twitter as well. But anyway, it's a it's a great video. And also, if you're if you're looking for our latest Patreon pod, if you're a patron, then we also covered that.
0: Hmm. And tell me why Kano's not a grappler because he's the number one grappler in Flesh and Blood. <laughs> On to sure. the Command and Cookout. Speaking of Singapore, we, we never do these creative lead-ins. I, I don't think anybody knows this, by the way. But all those Command and Cookout, this BS lead-ins you've heard for the past two years, yeah, those are never rehearsed. Those are just done live. That's why sometimes we come to the section. And I'm like, oh shit, what am I? What's what? What about Singaporean cuisine? Can we can we spice into here? I don't have anything this time, but I'll have something next week, Hayden. Uh, what do you have for the for the question?
1: Well, I'm off to a hawker's fall, aren't I? Uh, this week's question. So, if you want to get your questions in for the Command and Cookout, please do. We had a, a flood of questions over the last two weeks, so we we have some amazing questions. Uh, sort of, I guess, back catalogued over the next few weeks. But at some point soon, we'll probably we'll probably dive into another mailbag as well. So, if you do have questions that you want around on the show, uh, please please send them in. We we love getting your questions, and there's been some really interesting questions that have come through. This one though. Interestingly, Brennan, this is, this is the question that had the most, uh, uh, I guess, thumbs up or likes or upvotes, whatever you want to say oh, really? on the last week's YouTube video. Uh, and I thought quite an interesting question, a little bit fun, a little bit shorter. We've had a, a pretty big lead into the show here. The question is, and it comes from uh, Michael on, or Mikkel, I guess. Based on Hayden's professional fashion background, if Fab were to make merch, how would you envision the designs? Brendan, I even prepared one for you today. I even, am uh, wearing the Arsenal past mm-hmm. jersey. You should see the, the t-shirt.
0: Pocket. The t-shirt looks way better. Uh, yeah, yeah. The t is better. It, yeah. It's so good. It's the t actually has got a great fit. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. Based on Hayden's prof- uh, professional fashion background, if Fab were to make merch, how would you envision The designs, I think you should just change this to if Arsenal pass it was able, was to make merch.
1: Commercially available merch at that. Two things there. Firstly, uh, I guess if people do want, we we actually made some tees, we gave some away. um, We wore them at the last event. If people do like what we did, we, we might consider putting these out. Uh, available for public sale if people do want them so let us know I mean this is the jersey as I say I wouldn't redo this one I think I would do it slightly differently if you're watching YouTube I'm holding it up right now I'm wearing it. it has a print on the back which mm-hmm. I don't know if you can really see
0: yeah we also have a new you can see that print but we have a new logo now we basically repurposed the limited time only one I think that's going to be mm-hmm. the Arsenal Pass like logo moving forward it's, it's much cleaner uh, much more minimalist I mean <laughs> if you're listening to this and you would like your logo right next to our logo on that t-shirt just <laughs> hit us up because you know like <laughs> good sponsorship is a, is a great reason to to run a to create some merch honestly the main reason we haven't done it for anybody that really wants that stuff is holy crap the logistics <laughs> oh my god oh man they are not fun they are not fun
1: yeah if the logistics anyway quick question i guess the the answer to this question is i think What I think LSS have started to back into more, and you're seeing it more and more with the sleeve design in particular, so sleeves available for sale, these Dragon Shield sleeves, that's kind of the biggest merch they've done so far, Mm -hmm. right? And it's really hero-centric, which makes a lot of sense, right? I think Flesh and Blood is obviously, it's a class-based game, it's a hero-based game, people have affinity for the classes, heroes, like me and Brendan talked about at the top of the show and sort of went back and forth on about Light Illusionist, for instance. That's where people really... I think draw connection, and so that makes sense is like kind of making merch available for that standpoint, and I think obviously Alice has already identified that, and they're doing that in the form of sleeves. I would love to see you know talking about obviously I guess um I mean you say fashion, but merch i think I think play mats available for sale. I think we've gone through this whole cycle, I know they've used playmats for. Armory prizes for, you know, with your event entry. Dude, how many playmats do you have? I, I have to get rid of some the other day because I have about 35, 40 playmats. Like they are for everything. I wonder if at some point they kind of move away from that a little mm. bit. I have no We're starting to see more optional tag-ons at events if you want to get the playmat or not. People want to collect them. I get that. I would love to see them just do some like other than just the basic fair play map. Maybe just some basic like hero based or maybe mm. slightly different designs. Like the world do you remember the world map that was available at yes, Worlds? That's the, the best Wraith one map. by far.
0: Nothing comes It's amazing. Close. Yes.
1: It's amazing. But I could also say that we're just being like commercially available, yes. you know, as like one of their five sort of core ranges they do year round or something. And then they change it next year to they keep one of the core ones, but they change in four seasonal styles or something. I think that's a great way to do play mats as well. Water bottle want,
0: people, from Worlds. People want them. Um you remember that?
1: Go yes again. i mean everyone scrambling to try and get them
0: <laughs> apparently oh oh yeah so i want to say who's who did it but someone i know sold their white one which is like apparently uh, a chase water bottle <laughs> for like hundreds of dollars i was like what the hell um yeah so t- i gotta ask you a question about playmats, Hayden. playmats when you first started playing card games did you have an interest in playmats and collecting play mats no never okay so i did i just i'm wondering if that is just the natural progression of a tcg player is that they acquire <laughs> a bunch of play mats to begin with and then they realize that like this literally weighs 170 pounds and exists in my closet <laughs> like it you just get so many um uh, how would you envision the designs for merch? I mean, you talked about it a little bit. Could they do? Could they do T-shirts or something like that? Would people buy that? Would that be something that's cool? I think one of the coolest thing coolest things about, like you mentioned, the world's play Matt. We talked about the water ball. The coolest things about that is that they're less the physical item, but more the token of the experience. Right. So yeah. I think if there was a water bottle online. I wouldn't give a shit about it, to be honest, but Mm -hmm. if I get one at worlds and now I can have this and in five years, if I still have it, I look back and I remember, I remember that experience. That means something to me. I do think that, uh, less in the sort of line of selling stuff on a website or something for them. I do hope that at professional events, even callings, to be honest, they start doing more merch, right? They start doing more items that can help you. you know help you remember those experiences and more more sort of uh what would you call it items that can be used for like pens water bottles yeah yeah uh, yeah Yep. you know pins all that kind of stuff they, they can they can definitely do more there because when you show up at a calling and you just kind of get your generic promo or you get your playmat like the playmat just goes in the in the closet with the other playmats. so like let's be real unless it's the world's one
1: well there's just so many of them at this point like and and don't get me wrong i think some of them and they're all have this place and they're all amazing a lot of them are amazing anyway um i think there's that point right but at some point there is like burnout and fatigue of the amount of like a certain piece of merchandise i will go back to something that like magic did they often changed theirs they went through a period of using like pins like you just talked mm-hmm. about my favorite period was like they used like tops like t-shirts or like polo shirts right yeah. so you go to this event you know and i still have mine like i have mine from like my national championships rock up to like i've got my 2007 national championships like polo top you know like these things are really cool i thought my grand prix 2006 like with the grand prix logo and where the grand prix locations were like a band tee for that year like those sorts of things i think are are really cool right and whether you you just have those available for sale at the event i think those are cool you know you rock up to the event maybe you're not playing maybe you've you're going to go for the spectacle you're going to play side events at, at the world championships in 2023 for instance and you rock up to the merch table you buy yourself your tea here's my tea you know i'm like this is my this is my takeaway from this event mm-hmm. i got to play amazing games with people all weekend and i got this you know cool tea to remind me of it that i'm gonna i'm gonna go and wear it at my locals and be like yeah i was at worlds <laughs> like those uh, are those the when i look at when i think about clothing or apparel i think those are the opportunities that ls ha- has to do some merch yeah. is in that space or something that magic did that i friggin loved is they just did collaborations with people who are actually good at this sort of thing like mm-hmm. ls they're not a clothing company right they don't they don't know how to do this but they can pair with someone who knows how to do it. Yeah. And they can make some, some cool tees and stuff like that.
0: Right. Legend Story X Louis Vuitton bag coming out now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we could start a little bit lower You yeah. know what I'm saying? But.
0: Um, no, I really, I, I just want to, just one anecdote. I do really enjoy the t-shirts as well. For instance, uh, there's been a few people that have given me play mats over the years, whether it's for their channel or maybe mm-hmm. given me yep. a resource token. I'm going to be honest. Those things just, they go in the closet. That's just how it is. I've got too many of them. I've had one person though, give me a t-shirt and I probably wear that t-shirt. I don't know, four times a month at this point. It's the, yeah. the Fabrec.gg t-shirt. I work out in that t-shirt. Like I do. Uh, and it's, it's, it actually means something to me because I don't know, it, it's flesh and blood. And it, you know, it's, I guess it just, it's another workout to you, but I, I think it's cool. I think it's cool. And that was just, I don't know. It just has so much more impact on me than something like a play mat or a resource token or something like that. Something mm-hmm. that, you know, I obviously, or not obviously, but it's very likely I will have something that already serves that function. I already have a play mat. I have to play with the Arsenal pass one. That's just how it is. I already have a resource token. I have to play with our token. That's that's just how it is. So, yeah, big fan of t-shirts on my end, and I would love some polos. It's all about it's all about the ego, right? If you can take that shirt to your locals and just flex on the locals, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, polo shirts coming soon, just for Brendan. But anyway, uh, interesting question, and kind of. I guess on the theme of things we've been talking about today, which is a little bit more about events, and
0: mm, I thought you were going to say navigating the game games. itself.
1: <laughs> yes, well, great segue. Let's talk about navigating end games like a pro, Brendan Patrick. Firstly, want to ask? Yep, I was going to ask. What is? Wow, well, you can ask then. Where you go?
0: Yeah. So, what? Like, Hayden, just describe for everybody what is an end game. Uh, like what does it mean in flesh and blood like specifically is it is it related to your game plan uh, from the start is it related to how you play the, how you play throughout the game or is it literally just related to a specific instance in the game the the literal end game the last turn the last few turns the second cycle expand upon your definition sir
1: yeah i think it's a it's actually a really hard thing to nail down exactly when you transition to the end game because people will have Different definitions, naturally. It depends on the matchup you're playing in the deck. But I think one of the best ways you can define what is an end game in game and blood is basically when either hero, so either one or the other or both, are within lethal range, basically. Mm. So where damage is going to come in, at any given time that can deal or present lethal. That is what I think is an end game of Flesh of Blood. So I can give an example of this, right? Um, You're playing a, you know, you're playing an outsider's limited match and uh, you've gotten, both players have gotten below, you know, eight health. Now both are within this kind of potential lethal range and you're entering into an end game of of, of what the, the match could be. The, uh, you know, take a, a more extreme example. You're playing Class Constructed, you're playing Kano, nah, you got your opponent to twenty-seven <laughs> life, as Brendan likes to say. Or you could be at twenty-seven 40, life,
0: double double lesson. Sure, is, sure. Uh, hey, 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 <laughs> hey.
1: But if we're, you know, maybe they're playing AB two. being a bit more realistic about it. Twenty-seven life. Now you, you've got your Wi-Fi set up. You're into an in-game. You're playing an in-game. Is your opponent playing an in-game? Maybe not. Right. So and that's kind of what I think also matters is that an in-game isn't doesn't encompass necessarily just what is happening for. The, the table it could be a little bit one-sided because also some players might have a particular end game and that actually might be a mid game for another player so it it really can kind of depend but i think that one of the best ways to to put it is that you start to enter an end game when players are in this lethal range of life totals um, and or also into the second and third cycles of their deck starting to move through towards a very rapid into a game for potential fatigue reasons
0: I just, I, I love the, the, the idea that you sit across from a hero and the end game starts when the, when you roll, when, <laughs> when you flip the hero, um, how do you win them? Like what's talk to me about what we talk about, you know, end games being represented differently in different heroes, right? Maybe fine, not mm-hmm. being a sort of end game oriented deck, but then we have a deck that's very popular right now. Old him being something that's, it's basically built around the end game how can you exploit your understanding of end games and how can you how can you win them like what sort of end game situations are we looking for you know based off our own deck our opponent
1: um etc i think the first thing to kind of recognize is that you just said you know does fire have an end game i think the kind of the the bigger question before you even get to like how do you win them is like does every deck have an end game and are they built equal right Mm -hmm. like we just gave an example of like an outsider's limited match you know, both decks have probably pretty similar in games. It's a pretty linear format. It's not like class constructed, where you bring your own deck and strategy very massively. There's three classes in our size limited. They all have to operate off the same or close to the same carpool, at least share a carpool because of you know generics, etc. So it's a bit more linear. But when you talk about something class constructed, you know, you spoke about Fi. What about fires in game versus something like you know? Ultims in game and they can look very very different, but ultimately mm. they both have in games. It's just that the pace at which you reach your in game could be a lot faster. Fire's playing an aggro mirror. The in game could start anywhere from turns two, honestly, through to three, four, five, six, right? Versus ultim versus an ultim mirror. The in game really doesn't start until you def- until you hit second cycle and life totals are starting to approach that sub twenty mark, which can be, I guess, based on that, you know, a, a dozen or eight to nine turns into the game. Um so mm-hmm. as a minimum you know it doesn't turn into the game
0: yeah so when I look at a deck like Fi, it's kind of hard to be like does this deck have an end game I think it has an end-game strategy right and the end-game strategy is to avoid does. the opponent's decks end game right because your strategy is that I need to kill my opponent before I run out of threats in my deck right before I reach some sort of ratio dilution of having blues to reds in my decks to where I literally cannot kill my opponent if they're at some sort of life total threshold that that is an end-game strategy right but your core strategy is really avoiding the what would traditionally be seen as the quote unquote endgame from an olden deck. You need to win before then because you do not have enough. You don't have enough resources or gas to get through. You don't have some recurring threat, whether it's a Jota brutality, which is going to be legal, or something like Kadachi's, etc.
1: Yeah, and decks can have different endgames. Mm-hmm. So five, for example, you know, you get to an endgame where you've got your opponent down to two to three life or it's one to two life phoenix flame is your end game you've got Mm -hmm. this inevitability potentially of of an in game versus you know like you just spoke about before something like uh i mean one of your biggest in game strategies is to make sure that you can hold tempo into your in-game, so that you don't have to block because as soon as you have to block with all your two blocks now you're in trouble right now you're you're on the back foot you're potentially going to lose more cards out of your deck you're going to your life total is going to get lower and you're not going to have another pivot spot so in games can look different even with the same deck which i think is I think people don't. I think people really often. One of the, the downfalls I see people make when they sort of come up with their deck for flesh and blood, or they rock up to a tournament, is they're like, "Why well, every game going to end the same because I'm playing an aggro deck?" And it's just, it's, well, you know, every game's going to end with me doing X, and they don't really have contingency plans for different heroes, different matchups, or what happens if that end game doesn't eventuate because sometimes it won't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the sort of prelude to end games is, is game planning, right? And you need to have sort of a spatial awareness of how you plan to win and navigate every single game and where your deck, what, how your deck strategy will change as you transition from what could be seen as the early game to the mid game and now to the end game. Right. And maybe in the maybe in the case of something like five, the light are fast up. Maybe, maybe you just don't win the end game, but like Hayden said, um, uh, if you do have your opponent down at something like two or three, your end game strategy does change. You're prioritizing that Phoenix flame. You're making sure you're swinging with weapons. If you did have something like Kodachi, et cetera. Hayden, I know this is a bit, it's a bit ephemeral, right? But let's talk about some examples. What are some end games that are representative in the current meta?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a ton of really interesting end games. So uh, like I said before, every deck is going to have an end game. I think the argument more is that some decks don't have a mid game. Some decks just have an early and then mm-hmm. an end game, but I think there's some really interesting, complex end games in this current meta. And that's a big part of the reason why we want to talk about it now. Like, why talk about end games now? We could talk about it in a, 112 episodes before this. And we've talked about, you know, pitch stacking and second cycle and things like that. But the actual complexity of end games is probably higher than it's ever been. And I'll just give a few examples. So Ultim versus Jermai. If you've watched the mm. the two-hour mammoth semifinal between uh, Michael Feng and, and Yuha at Uh, proto Baltimore a great example of how complex these in games can be between these two decks and uh, I think this matchup is one that's been played a lot now in the current meta just with you know basically two of the top three most played decks being Ultim and Dromai Uh, and it really comes down to kind of how the Ultim has navigated it with sort of poppers how the Dromai has navigated it with their kind of uh, ghostly touch passing mirage sort of in game so and it can look a little bit different depending on your strategy depending on what the ultim does so a very complex in game that definitely goes very often towards second third cycles uh Lexi versus Ultim, especially if the Ultim is going to try and fatigue that Lexi. Uh, that's a really interesting in-game that revolves around, you know, this Le- the Lexi player getting to second cycle and using things like um, Codex Codexes to make sure that they have their, their threat density still left, pitching rain raises and three of a kinds together early to set up these big push turns. Uh, uh an in-game strategy that involves like basically transitioning from a mid-game where maybe you you land a drill shot on a rampart into having enough damage in your in-game um, I mean, Lexi versus Azuri is another interesting one. Azuri looks to take the game long and, and grind out the Lexis and, and run them out of cards, right, effectively or or, or kill them through this chip damage. versus Bravo has been another one we've seen uh, a bit pop up. Katsu versus is Ultim is, a, is another one as well. I mean, that's a, that one I think is really interesting and we haven't seen as much of it and we won't see as much, of it, obviously, with Ultim, Living Legend. But, you know, these Katsu decks have this access to this inevitability now with um, uh, Dojo and the sort of timestamp mugenshi line that people are playing to just shuffle in threat density so traditionally it's like katsu you just run out of threats and now you have all this way to like just continue to keep threat density so um, yeah there's a lot of really interesting in games in this meta and, and I think we haven't seen this before I mean if I throw back to some previous metas, you know it's like dash control in the in game or uh, maybe the iceland versus ultimate game but they were they were a bit more f- they were fewer and far between I think and now there's there's quite a lot of really interesting and complexity in game games in this in this current uh, sort of format.
0: Mm-hmm. So if we understand that every deck um, will need to at least participate or be co- cognizant in the end game in some way, uh, despite you know whether you define yourself as a as an early game focused deck like an aggro deck or not, mm. uh, you need to be prepared for it. How does this change things like? deck building and some of the strategies that you're planning to employ when you're thinking about what cards to put in said deck
1: yeah well i I think for are we gonna aggro we're gonna we're gonna be uh rush down decks now we rush down people uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean great question like so i guess what when it comes to building and strategizing and card choices i mean it it matters like a lot i think and this is what I was saying before about I think people come with this one size fits all approach too often and I think that's worked in previous metas. it's like hey this is my fire deck this is what my fire deck does hey this is my icelander deck and I'm going to chip 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 wonder bull mm-hmm. you know e strike you and then I'm going to boost you at the end of the game mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like hey here's an ultim deck that's going to recur uh warhorns and try and fatigue you what are you going to do into that yeah. and I, I think that strategy was so successful because people didn't have the answer to it they didn't have an understanding of what their end game would look like So. I think when you look at basically, I think always the best way to first approach it is like, okay, what is my linear in game? That's kind of what we talk about, right? Like, how do I want to end the game ideally and repeatability of ending of having the same in games is going to be great, right? That's how you have consistency. It's how you make it easy. It's how you just like stick to a strategy and, and win games, right? But then beyond that, it's like, okay, what are the other strategies in the format? What are my opponent's in games look like? And then how am I going to interact with that? Because if I have in-game X and my opponent has in-game Y and they don't gel together, somebody has got to somebody's got give, right? somebody has got to break. And in testing, if you find it's consistently your in-game that's being undermined and not working, you've got to have a different strategy. You've got to have a different way to approach the in-game. Um, and I know people focus a lot about or on this kind of idea of meshing game plans or sort of match-up plans, right? But they often focus on the early in the mid-game or holistically they go like well my opponent's plan is fatigue so here's my anti-fatigue strategy but what they might not think about is you know what does the specific how do i actually finish the game off how do i win the game and that that can be a little more difficult Mm -hmm. i feel like
0: in the old him the current well i guess it's the past at this point almost the old him versus (laughs) jermai matchup uh, a lot of the old him's end game it seems like is actually countering the Jermai's end game, right? Like, there's a lot of th- mm-hmm. there's some things you have to worry about in the early to mid game. You really got to be careful with the Talmatai. You got to be careful of, like a lot of rake the embers. You know, getting at, getting too far ahead on board. But then once you settle into this mid game, there's a lot of posturing in your if, if your Jermai opponent is. Taking up that ghostly touch is developing things like the time snap potion, has pitched the passing mirages. Like you see a clear way in which they're trying to win the game. And the old him player needs to maintain enough threat density in order to deny that, right? In order not threat density, but you know, popper density in order to deny that, and potentially needs things like we saw in Michael Thanks match versus Yuha, have something like the staunch responses for inevitably when that passing mirage takes phantasm off the ghostly touch, you need a value block on it as well as having a threat density. So, old him, a lot of that deck strategy into Jermime is actually just countering what the dromai is showing you through the through the through the way they deploy their threats onto the board and through the way they pitch their deck
1: yeah it's it's like counter it's like steps it's like levels mm-hmm. right level level zero is you know the ultim just killing the Dromai, right level one is the dromai navigating poppers and getting to an end game Level two is the 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 ultim countering their in game strategy right? make sure they've got enough poppers, making sure they've got a way to deal with ghosty touch, keeping the life total high, whatever it is, right? Dealing with the key dragons. Level three though, that's the next one. This maybe what we didn't quite see Yuha execute, but it looked like Yuha was trying to move towards this is navigating the the counter plan that ultim has mm. to counter the counter effectively, and and that's literally what it is. It's like levels to in games. I'll, I'll give you another example: Briar versus Ultim. This is one that we you know we played a lot of uh, prior yeah. to Pro Tour Lille. We've really tried to understand this matchup, and it was like okay level one uh, especially as these fatigue ultims really became popular it's like level level one is like as a briar you just smash him you just kill him you don't (laughs) let him yeah you just cmh turns whatever ultim hey we can get through these cmh turns and then we can fatigue them okay briar's response okay the response to this counter or this in-game strategy is making sure that we've got recursive ways to bring back our most powerful threats so so tomorrow we saw rights of replenishment really come to the forefront Let's go to, let's go to the next stage. Okay, Ultim. Okay, we need to make sure that we have ways to to counter the Spinal. Spiral. So, <laughs> counter stack Having some on. Yeah, like- exactly. Ha- exactly. Counter stack on hit effects. Okay, here's here's the next layer in for, for Briar. We've got cards like give and take in the format now. These amazing, you know, cards mm-hmm. that can even more recursive power and we can push really big turns. Ultim again responds, I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch defense reactions. So my counter pitch is now my way I'm responding to you It's kind of similar to the the spinal thing. So this kind of evolution of layering on top of game plans is is literally what in games and evolution of in games look like. And that's what they that's what they are, evolution blood, even if people haven't necessarily identified this or they don't talk about it this way. That's literally what it is. Player, you know, player A rocks up to an event, does really well in an event, and shows off a strategy that counters something. Next time, people have like, adapted to the strategy. They come with a counter strategy. But the person who's a level up from them has thought of the counter to the counter. You know what I mean? They've been in testing. So let's use an example from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes to Baltimore. They go, Lixie is so powerful, right? Here's the Lexi strategy. And this is how they're beating ultims with codexes and stuff. The ultims respond and go, this is our plan. And then we see like the best Lexis to Top 8, I think you have like a counter to counter plan. Lightning Press was like, it's like a really big card for that sort of counter plan that people showed up with at Baltimore. Um, we saw, I think Max have it in Top 8 as well. So that's, we see it in action all the time. I think people just don't talk about the fact that these often revolve around end games. They're like specific situations or cards or things mm. that interact with um, getting into the end game and doing a specific task effectively.
0: It's dynamic, right? Like it, it, it's it is dynamic. dynamic. <laughs> and I think Flesh and Flesh and Blood is... In relation to other card games, it, it is the card game where you play against you play against your opponent the most, less than you just play your deck, right? Decks just mm-hmm. don't tend to win by themselves. Of course, there are outliers, but most of the time, even end game is where it is most important, but through the early game, the mid game, and the end game, you are reacting to your opponent. You're adjusting your strategy based off what your opponent is doing. You're sort of reading into what... Yeah. So, their turn-to-turn plays right and if you extend to the end game you get into deeper territory right now you're you're seeing you're seeing perfect information on their second cycle or close to you know crown of seeds sink blow maybe not perfect close to (laughs) and now you can manipulate your own deck as a way to counter that and the the levels i guess technically or not technically but they would seem to go infinitely deep but at some point it's like your game plan is is able to beat what your opponent is trying to do to counter you. And you sort of come out on top on this loop. And yeah, it's very, very it's it's what makes the game fun, right? Is it, that right there. You, you legitimately get to play against your opponent. You're not just playing your deck in flesh and blood.
1: Yeah. And I think it's more prevalent or at least it's more tangible when you get to these formats where you have second, and third cycles because now you're able to you've got this element of strategy that wasn't available mm-hmm. for an in-game prior because in-games were a lot shorter, they arrived sooner in previous formats. I think one word of warning I want to give though is that if you're taking this approach or kind of thinking about what we've talked about today in terms of navigating end games one thing I think people can do is they can swing the pendulum too far the other way and they get so focused on like this iterative sort yeah. of idea of in games that they show up they go like okay this is how I'm going to count them the end game or oh, my opponent's just going route, route one and just going to destroy me and I, I am not ready I have this an example because <laughs> I've just I've very, go, very go recent
0: example. It. So in the Realm Games tournament in top eight, there was Kano um, Kano versus Lexi, Yonji, Leon, Lexi, and the Kano player. Oh, I forget, I forget uh, their name because they actually went by a nickname. Um, they told me and I forgot. But you see the Kano player turn zero, get energy potion onto the board, and it looks, you know, you can tell by the posturing that's done over the next one, one to three turns that there's likely a wildfire in Arsenal. And then you see the Kano player proceed to pass. Take damage, pass, take damage, pass. It's because that they realize with energy potion, with having access to 15 resources with energy potion and spellfire cloak that they can play double, play Aether wildfire, potentially double wildfire if they find it. But more importantly, wildfire, lessons in lava, go find, lessons in lava, go find. Blazing Aether, and that's 40 damage, right? And the Lexi player has access to Arcane Barrier 1, and if the Lexi player overextends, at Arcane Barrier 0, that is a 40 damage combo. We see the K- Kano player hyper-focus on that endgame. Game starts, see correct cards, endgame is now in effect, right? We talked about that potential against Kano. But due to focusing on that end game, right? And the condition, the variable, is just too unlikely. The, the Lexi player must have zero cards to pitch to Arcane Barrier to die from 40, which was the life total. We see the player ultimately lose that game um, because, like you said, they went they went a little too deep, right? They saw the win, they saw the end game, but you cannot it, it, you could not reliably have the the Lexi player meet the the said conditions to win that game without first putting on pressure, right? That was sort of the key metric that was that was sort of forgotten uh, for, for God when we when we employed that strategy. So there was no pressure, there was no tax mm-hmm. on the Lexi player's hand.
1: Well, there's two players playing that game, right? Mm. So, in your example, one player has jumped straight to the end game. The Lexi player on the other side, yeah. hey, they're still playing the the, the earlier mid game. Yeah. And that's kind of what it's about is like identifying and navigating. And the, <laughs> the jar's empty, Brennan, The the Lexi player might have also identified that, hey, look, my my Kano opponent feels they're at their end game right now. My, sort of, my current situation is that that's not where we're at. Yeah. We're very much in the middle of this game for me. I'm going to continue to apply pressure while... Denying their in-game, which is something I'd love to talk about to sort of wrap this up, is denying in-games, and then we, I'm going to get to my in-game, and then my in-game is going to line up better into their in-game because I'm, you know, I've done X, Y, Z, for instance. So yeah, it's a really interesting concept. There's no, it's really fluid, I think, as well, what in-games can look like. But um, yeah, that's a that's a really cool example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Um, and, you know, like you said, I mean, the Lexi player in that position just needs to. I mean, after you see your your Kano opponent pass, play the play the energy potion, assist the card in Arsenal. You have to ask yourself, how do I lose this game? And then you simply do the math, right? Simply do the math it, across almost every strategy that can be implemented onto you. The most likely, of course, is double lesson because of a significantly lower variance in something like double wildfire, and that's forty damage. And all you have to do is like, I keep one resource in hand. No chance I lose this game, right? Well, Kano can always go nuclear. So, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I mean, always a chance, there's always some always a oh, sorry, some bologna sandwich waiting yeah. for you. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I want to talk about about denying in games. Obviously, there's a lot of strategies when it comes to in games and um, how you can set these up. And there's, you know, we could use a lot of examples for decks that we've played as well. You know, chain, Kano, Viseray. Oh, I think yeah. Viseray versus Fatigue, for instance. If anyone's ever seen that infamous match, uh, my national finals. But there's there's a lot of different sort of things. <laughs> that's I think that's a great example. If you haven't seen this match, it was my national finals, the January of last year, uh, and my opponent on Ultim. Like has a strategy basically to get to an in game where they have too much life for me to be yeah. able to skill out a combo. It's, it's Chain versus anyway.
0: prism with the arc light sentinels yep. and just like yeah, it, it's it's very prevalent, right? Like especially in you know past western blood. Now in modern day, I went through a period like you yeah. said where it was uh, it was less popular, but nowadays um, you absolutely need to keep it in mind
1: snag for the refined stack at the end I of a game and then navigating <laughs> that by just holding refines and us and banish and doing it all again. Yeah. Um, yeah shots at LSS anyway.
0: snag was a bad card, never worked. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, we haven't seen that card much since then, have we? How can you deny in-games? I think this is a sort of a, a last sort of interesting concept. So, you know, firstly, the biggest thing is identifying war. An in-game looks yes. like yourself or for an opponent. It's really important. So I think your example kind of shows exactly how you can deny in-games. You just showed that whether that kind of player jumped straight to it or not, the Lexi player responded by trying to deny the end game, and mm-hmm. I think that is something that we see in other strategies as well. So, if I take like dash, um, the control dash decks, mm-hmm. right, for, as an example, they're trying to get to a, a point where they're able to gain life, soak up damage, while getting items on the board to then transition to this end game, which is effectively chip damage so we transition we set up we set up we transition to this end game where now they take this overwhelming like 15 damage return starts to come in off you know off two to three cards and they can present this really big chunks of damage really efficiently how do you deny that well either you you know your strategy might be to get their life total below a certain point say below 10 so that they can't ever keep enough cards in hand in their end game to pressure you this way or so you can potentially run them out of cards or force them to block and leak through damage. Your strategy might be to actually uh, get rid of some of these items somehow, so force them to discard cards, Righteous Cleansing is a card, and the Guardians that have come up more more recently, um, Arg Smash if you're a Brute player, for instance. So there's always ways to deny games, and I think when you can identify that decks have really strong end games, and I think there's a few examples in this format, Ultim, Dash in particular, uh, Uzuri is another, even Lexi, These decks have really strong potential end games. If you can identify what those end games are based on the deck that you're playing, then you can find ways to counter and ways to sort of make sure you have a way to stop their end game going in.
0: The heuristic is to counter end games, and I would I would arguably say to win end games is you need to understand your opponent's end games. How does your opponent's Mm -hmm. deck win the game? How can like how can you potentially lose the game? You need to be thinking about this. Constantly, as you play Vlush and blood, but also there is knowledge that you can enter games with prior to knowing your opponent, right? which is how does, how does this olden deck that's popular in the meta tend to win the game? What is the strategy they will implement on me? And starting from turn one, if I'm playing something like Alexi, I know that I need to be considering like if this game goes longer past X period. I need to be preparing from that from turn zero. Like I need to be, I need to have threat density. I need to be setting up my deck, etc. So I think one of the most important things is just understanding your opponent's end game. Like that's that's step one. It sounds obvious, but it's uh it's not.
1: Yeah. And your own in-game. That might be step one, step two might but like it's in-games don't happen by accident. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like the way that you get to your and you execute your in-games, like very rarely i'll say at least do they happen by accident very often they are they are planned and the player who plans and sets up is in a much better position majority of the time so it's uh it's well worth doing i guess maybe to just kind of end it on um a few things to keep in mind when it comes to navigating and mastering in games um get the reps mm-hmm. have these plans understand what they are so that you can enact them Know how the opponent can disrupt your plans as well. That's that next step we talked about. Identify your pivot points is really important as well. So when is the early transition to mid? When is the mid transition to end? And how your game plans might sort of travel through this depending on what you're playing against mm-hmm. so does your end game come sooner because your opponent's leaking damage and you yeah. thought they wouldn't does it come later because they're more defensive you have to block so, with ninth
0: yeah. blade how are you pivoting or like some sort of key sort of sort of key end game card has now been depleted from your deck whether you're playing chain or something like you lost a key Riftbine, etc like your your end game and your potential damage output to actually close this game out has now changed and you have to you have to adapt
1: Mm-hmm. Don't block with those cards. <laughs> I can't tell you though, like during testing and like learning a matchup or learning an in-game, how many times I get to the in-game and go, oh, I shouldn't have blocked that card, or I pitched this card on the wrong turn, or you know, I played this card too early, or whatever. Like it, there's so many learnings, I think, when it comes to in-games. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one last question to round it out there, Brendan. Is what do you think in-games will look like moving forward? Of course, we know is hitting Living Legion. That's a big contributor to some pretty complex in-games hitting out the window. Uh mm-hmm. is not gone which is interesting so what that means i don't know assassin though is is really popular uh and gaining popularity azuri especially especially with the leaving I, I can see that only gaining popularity dromai of course again probably one of its worst matchups heading out the window it depends who you talk to but mm-hmm. uh so where, where do you think end games go from here and, and will we continue to see end games be important in flesh and blood in the way that they probably have been in this past format jonah Batality just kidding oh and blitz that's <laughs> <laughs> in blitz
0: brutality and blitz uh it's so funny because uh, i was just i'll get there later it's a tangent um where do they go <laughs> with rosetta Th- i mean i think they stay i mean there's a de- old him is an archetype i think it's just the most the most effective version of that archetype we've ever seen the most streamlined the most efficient etc but some deck will sort of fill that role maybe not cover it covers as many bases mm-hmm. right where it's also the tempo deck and the fatigue deck and you're like but there is going to be another deck that is going to try to attrition decks out and i think that you're presented with similar end game scenarios maybe you have less complexity in the early to mid game where you're having to actually be worried about ultimate pressure on hit effects etc but mm-hmm. this this sort of puzzle where you have to figure out how to um, deplete your opponent's life total to zero despite them blocking with all of their cards disrupting you with on hit effects etc it will still be prevalence so i don't think that changes um ultimately with something like Rosetta gone, I, I'm not sure it changes the fundamental concept I, mean, I think it's here to stay, and I think it, it it will always just be contextual on what what is in the meta right now, right like it is a core facet of flesh and blood gameplay is end games like they occur a sort of I would say out, outside of whatever the current meta conditions are, right? It, it, it just simply shifts. So old Tim leaves, Rosetta leaves, doesn't matter. The, the, the goalpost just sort of moves on what the current meta is and what decks will need to adapt and how, um, with their end games.
1: Yeah. I think it's more about the complexity of end games. Like we said, like I, my argument would be that all decks have an early in an end game. Mm-hmm. Some decks might not have a mid game or very short win, uh, window for a, a mid game. I think all decks have some sort of in game, right? Um, it's just about identifying that, but I think uh, the complexity and the the nature of how large these in games are, and these this this current format in particular, has been really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I think that, and for me, the key pillars are going to be I think Assassin and Dromai for what those look like uh, heading into this next format. But I, I am really interested to see how how it kind of goes because also we get another Illusionist, uh, and of course we get another Shadow Room Blade. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, uh, Angels or
0: whatever they're doing to try to fix Spectra. <laughs> anyway end games for those of you listening on Sp- audio platforms hey now if i interrupted you there i had a little
1: pss- i was gonna say speaking of in games
0: speaking of, yeah speaking of end games the end game of the podcast if you're listening to this on an audio platform there's a video version on youtube youtube.com slash arsenal pass mm-hmm. hey on twitter at brennan apg and at fiend underscore dale um yeah check out the patreon if you're interested uh we do have deck techs and deck guides going up on there we'll have more for national season i'm sure but also hayden like like hayden mentioned there is a great video on there discussing archetypes and flesh and blood based off of gorgaine and thomas video i think we nailed it pretty good um other than that that's it for the week thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next week